HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. HRN is food radio supported by you. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. The urban sprawl from Asheville is starting to come our way. And I've had developers approach me. They could put three houses to the acre. So you're looking at 150 homes. They're not making any more land. I mean, once it's developed, paved over, whatever, it's gone. It's hard to reclaim to get it back into a productive farm. You'll hear more about that story on this episode of No Farms, No Future, a podcast by American Farmland Trust. I'm John Piotti, President and CEO of American Farmland Trust. In each new episode, we'll take up a critical challenge faced by farmers. Join us to hear their voices as they face tough decisions facing their world and ours. For the rest of this episode, we'll turn it over to our producer, Gail Chaddock. Thank you, John. The United States is on track to lose at least 18 million acres of farmland by 2040, threatening not only our long-term food supply, but also the environment. Mitch Hunter is the lead author of American Farmland Trust's new report, Farms Under Threat 2040, Choosing an Abundant Future. Mitch, American Farmland Trust has been tracking loss of farmland since its founding in 1980. What's new about this study? No one has ever done a study looking out into the future to understand how our development patterns are affecting the future of farmland. Even at American Farmland Trust, all of our previous studies had looked backwards, used data on the type of conversion that had occurred. And there are other folks who've done these sorts of projections, but none of them has really focused on agricultural land and understanding the threats to it, the trends that are driving the loss and conversion of agricultural land, and really brought that far-sighted vision to be thinking not a couple of years down the road, but a couple of decades down the road and beyond, because our population is only growing, our demand for food is only growing, and the threats to our environment, unfortunately, are only growing. And so we need to be thinking in that far-sighted way to make good decisions now about the future of our land use, the future of agriculture, and the future of the environment. 
Yeah, that connection between farmland and environment isn't always obvious. People think of farmland, they think food. But it's more than that. Can, can you help our listeners understand what's at stake when you lose farmland? Absolutely. So in this country, huge as it is, agricultural land makes up half of all of our land, privately owned agricultural land. So if you ignore agricultural land and imagine that nature only happens in parks and preserves, you're missing half the picture. Um, we have to manage that one billion acres of land in a way that benefits the environment, that makes the environment stronger and healthier, that helps fish thrive and wildlife thrive and pollinators and insects, because we as humans depend on all these things. It's one integrated system. And if we forget the fact that agricultural land is critical for all of that to function and work together, we're kind of signing our own death warrant in the long term. Humanity cannot survive without a thriving agricultural system, without a healthy natural environment, and the two go hand in hand. So we really need to think about our 1 billion acres of agricultural land as an opportunity to do more to improve the environment. And with the right management practices, if we keep that land in agriculture, it can be, in many cases, a really uh, essential component of a healthy landscape um, that integrates farms and forests and streams and lakes and wetlands and all kinds of natural environment, along with the managed environment that we need to grow our food. What did this study allow you to see, allow policymakers to see, that they might otherwise have missed? I think what this study shows is what happens if we stay asleep at the wheel. And it allows policymakers to see into the future in a way that they never could before. Now, we know that the world is going to change over the next 20 years, right? But the best way to predict what's going to happen as far as the way that Americans build cities and towns and subdivisions and shopping centers, et cetera, is by looking at the recent past. And so that's what we did. We took a look at the types of development and other land conversion that happened from 2001 to 2016, which we had previously documented in a separate report. And we took that and we extended it out into the future. What happens if we keep going along this path for the next 20 years? What is that going to mean for our agricultural land? That's not something that we knew before. That's not something that we could put on a map and illustrate for policymakers ever before in a way that really hits home, that they can understand, oh, this might be the fate of my town. This might be the fate of my city or my congressional district or the place where I grew up, the farm that I grew up on. And so I think putting it in those really specific ways, putting it on a map in a way that people can really relate to it has a lot of power. And I think helps people, especially policymakers, connect numbers, which can be abstract, to something about the way the world looks to them and the world that they care about in the future. Mitch, what in your own experience brought you to care about preserving farmland. How did you get here? Well, I come from a farming family. My parents were farming in Illinois when I was born. My family moved off the farm when I was just a year and a half, so I did not get to grow up there, but it was always in the family. It was grandma and grandpa's farm, um, and I went back there in the summers and for holidays and just totally fell in love. Um, 
And I even remember as a kid at one point, I had a nightmare that I was on their farm and I looked over the horizon and there was this whole field that had been turned into houses. <laughs> so there might be there might be some deep psychological roots to my concern about, about farmland loss. Um, but what really happened is that in college, I got interested in agricultural policy and I had an opportunity a couple of years after I graduated to go work with American Farmland Trust in Washington, D.C. and learned um, about the long history of working to protect agricultural land from development and got insight into the ways that policymaking can help um, provide a solution to support farmers who want to protect their land and to support better development patterns. You use technical mapping capabilities in this report that you tell us have not been used to look at agricultural land before. I'm uh, interested in what's happening in my state, let's say Nebraska, New Hampshire. How can I use your report to get a sense of what's happening where I live? Yeah, so we not only used really cutting edge machine learning, geospatial technology to project this change, but we also took the results of those projections and we put them online in a really easily accessible website that anybody can go to and look at your backyard in Nebraska, in New Hampshire, anywhere that might be. And I'll plug the URL. It is development2040.farmland.org. You can also just go to the main farmland.org page and navigate around and you can find our Farms Under Threat site and the link to that page where the way we set it up, you've got two maps that you can compare. So you can compare where we are today or really in 2016, our baseline year, to where we're headed in 2040 under, let's say, the business as usual approach um, that we modeled. Or you can compare 2040 with a runaway sprawl scenario where we make, let's say, even less wise decisions about how we manage our land and how we accommodate new population growth. And you can compare that against our better built city scenario where we imagined, what if we get smart? What if we start making better decisions about the value of our agricultural land and the way that we let our cities and towns grow and build thriving cities and towns by doing in a way that keeps them compact, keeps them vibrant, keeps them affordable. And we know that we're in the middle of an affordable housing crisis in this country. So that's the future that we imagine that we hope our policymakers will embrace and move towards. And our mapping tool will let anybody zoom into their town and see what the differences could look like. It's an illustration of potential futures between these different scenarios. So don't hold me to every little detail, but if you want to see a picture of what it might look like, I think that our maps are a great place to start. You know, one of the messages that came out of the lockdown for lots of people was, I would like to find a way to work that's not in a city. And what seems better than a lovely field? And people need places to work, need places to live. Uh, how do you respond to that uh, impulse? I think it's a real concern, especially remote work opportunities, the expansion of rural broadband, which, by the way, is a good thing. Uh, there should be equal access to broadband in this country. But it might make it all too easy for a lot of people to make that very decision and say, hey, you know, I would just be so much happier if I were plugging away at my computer, looking out over my five acres of land. 
The problem is that is the least efficient possible way to give people a nice place to live. If we think big picture, if we think about our country and our future and our children's prosperity, we need that agricultural land to be producing food. The more of it that we convert to rural sprawl, the harder that we have to work to get the food that we need and the bigger, more pressure we put on the rest of the agricultural land to be productive, which means in many cases we have to fertilize it more, potentially till it more often and do things that make it a bigger burden on the environment when we need to be going in the other direction and managing our agricultural land to be an asset to the environment. Drilling down a bit more there, what do you see as the root of this problem? Absolutely. The scenario of post-pandemic remote work flight is still a little bit something that we're imagining. It hasn't been long enough to see whether that's really happening yet. But the historical trend that's been driving this and I think is going to continue driving it is just kind of a laissez-faire approach where people move out to the outskirts of cities because they can, because there aren't any smart policies put in place by these counties, even on the outskirts of major metropolitan areas, much less in the more rural parts of the state where county governments are a little bit slimmer and the capacity is not as great. Again, there's nothing stopping people and it at those distances from the city, the land is more affordable. So for folks who are able to go out there and build a house, you can achieve that kind of dream home feel, but it comes at the expense many times of the environment, of the farmland, of really the vibrancy of that very community that people are moving into. Thank you, Mitch. I'm Katie Mosman-Wadler, Executive Director of Heritage Radio Network. Stay with us for the rest of this episode of No Farms, No Future. HRN is thrilled to be the home of this new podcast because America's irreplaceable farmland grows our food and supports a trillion-dollar-a-year agriculture economy. Farmland is the foundation of our rural communities, providing jobs, recreational opportunities, and a deep connection to the land. Farms are also critical in the fight against climate change. Learn more about American Farmland Trust and how to get involved at farmland.org. Now let's return to today's show. Let's take a closer look at one of the states most likely to lose significant farmland in the next two decades, North Carolina. North Carolina ranks number two right behind Texas and states expected to lose significant farmland in the next two decades. Josh Sorrells is a fourth-generation farmer and landowner in Canton, North Carolina. Josh, welcome. Tell us something about what brought you to farming. My family's been in western North Carolina since the 1790s. Wow. I farm with my uh, wife and my parents. We're a diversified farm from beef cattle to horticultural plants and greenhouse and nursery. My grandfather and my, my father farmed. They uh, did the more traditional farm, barley tobacco, cattle, corn, and hay. I could see the changes once I went to college and come back to the farm. I could see the changes in agriculture. Our land is, is high value land. We don't have a lot of land 
And so I could just sort of see the changes in the, the tobacco industry and as a way to uh, keep working on the farm. I went to work in a small greenhouse and I was working there, but then I, I went to work at a factory third shift so I could farm during the day and work uh, work at night till I got the got the capital to start my business, to start the farm. Because, you know, farming is a high capital game that you're you're working with. You there's everything's expensive from land to equipment to uh, startup costs. Uh, what do you like about farming? I like the independence. I like taking a plant from a seed or a cutting to a finished product that you're selling to a consumer that uh, will get enjoyment out of the tree or the geranium or whatever. With the cattle, I like the genetics part of it. Dealing with cattle, it's a long term. If you're raising just for genetics and stuff, it's not something you'll see next year. You'll see it five to 10 years down the road. But we're trying to get into more of the direct marketing to the end consumer, having the animal processed and stuff. Just just because the margins are so much better. It's interesting. You are really having to keep on top of where your profession is going to I wear many this. different hats. <laughs> it sounds like it. Have you taught yourself? Did you pick up any of this in college or is it? I, like I said, I attended NC State University, the two-year program. Uh, then back in 99 and 2000, I went through the Philip Morris Ag Leadership Program. I also do a lot of seminars through the NRCS, Haywood Soil and Water, Extension Service. There are a lot of agencies we cooperate with, NCDA. They're all helpful, and they all work good together. If we have a problem, we'll talk to each other, and we'll figure it out and get a solution to it. You know, the report that American Farmland Trust recently put out about where farmland preservation may be headed by 2040 uh, has some fairly sobering numbers for North Carolina. It talked about if recent trends continue, North Carolina is going to lose something like 1.2 million acres of farmland. Mm -hmm. um, when you look ahead 40 years in Hayward County, what do you think it's going to look like? I hope and pray that it don't come to that, our portion of that land, because they're not making any more land. I mean, once it's developed, paved over, uh, whatever, it's it's gone. It's hard to reclaim to get it back into a productive farm or land. You talked about the fact that your farm is on prime land. What did you mean by that? Our farm is prime land for housing development. Like I said, close to schools, close to infrastructure, close to town. We are actually about 20 minutes from downtown Asheville, which is uh, in a different county, but it, the urban sprawl from Asheville is starting to come our way. And I've had developers approach me, they could put three houses to the acre with with that. So you're looking at 150 homes. Well, you know, uh, an acre inch of water is about 27,000 gallons. So for every inch of rain that falls on an impervial surface, you'll have 27,000 gallons of water going down the creek, not only with the water with the oil, pollutants, all that other stuff, whereas our farm acts as a big filter. That's a fairly convincing argument. <laughs> Do you find that you're able to uh, generate local support? I would imagine the uh, 
tax benefits from development might have some appeal for local leaders? You know, they want the development, but every time you develop a farm, that takes away the reason for people wanting to move here to see the farm, so it's a double-edged sword. <laughs> How many acres is your farm? The farm that we own, that I, me and my wife own, is 50, 64 acres. But all told, we we farm about, uh, with the pasture and stuff, we farm about 200, 250. Are you under any pressure to sell that land for other purposes? We're not under that pressure yet, but a lot of the land in Haywood County, the heirs to the property usually get it and they don't want to farm and they sell it. We have a lot of people moving into our county because the climate, the quality of life, and it's getting to be a retirement or second home county. But that causes the problem of people buying in, moving, offering uh, exorbitant prices for land to live here, which takes away from the farmland. That's it. Uh, Any other pressure for uses of farmland that is new to you? Mainly it's just commercial development, housing developments. That's our big pressure. What exactly do you do to help ease those pressures? Educate people, I guess, is what we need to do, is educate people why it's so important. We have got a lot of excellent soils in the county. Our county is the only county in North Carolina that all the water that falls, rainwater that falls in our county, originates in our county. We have no no other rivers or waterways flowing through our county. Everything flows out, so we're a headwaters county. So our waters are clean, and we try to keep them clean. And, you know, with development, that sort of changes the dynamic of the, the water situation. Should our listeners be concerned about the loss of farmland? Isn't there a lot of it all over the country? Uh, I think it's, it's the conservation of the natural resources, the land, food security. You know, back in World War II, the United States stepped up to the plate producing food and pretty much fed the world. We have a a very safe and secure food supply in this country. Well, when you start taking these little pieces away, you lose that security. And then you're relied on another country to do that. That's one thing that I see, I sort of am concerned with. During the COVID lockdowns, did you see more appreciation or value in having farms close by? Yes, ma'am. Able to produce food. Uh, Tell us a little bit about that. During the lockdowns, when when they started having like some food issues and you know stores and stuff, people started calling asking us for if we had beef. Well, we couldn't producing an animal for beef is a longer process, so we couldn't really do that. Whereas the poultry guys, they stepped up to the plate. The pork guys stepped up to the plate and produced and had the product there to sell. But people liked. They was able to get out and come to the farm, the greenhouses and stuff, and see that that was one thing they could do because we never got shut down. I'm going to give you absolute power for a minute here. Uh, What would you most change to make it possible to keep farmers on the land and profitable? That's a good question. In our area, with the limited amount of farmland we have in our county, we have got to get closer to the consumer to sell our product direct 
uh, to get a better margin. We really appreciate your being with us. I want to just leave you with one wide open question. Mm -hmm. If you could say anything to our listeners uh, that we haven't talked about already or that you want to expand on that would help them better understand the situation on a farm today, what would it be? I would say support your local farms. If you have a question, talk to them. Don't just go start shooting from the hip, you know, just go out and talk to the farmer. Let the farmer explain to you what he does and stuff. Talk to your uh, local agents, the NRCS, the Extension Service, NCDA, and try to stay in loop and work, work together when there's always a solution to a problem. You just got to work through it. Josh, thank you so much thank you. for your time. Really appreciate it. Let's turn now to Ryan Manning, who is the Farmland Preservation Coordinator for Hayward County in North Carolina. If I can just add, Josh is being a bit humble. He is a member of the county's Agricultural Advisory Board, which facilitates the county's farmland preservation program. So he gets to participate and oversee and guide that program that the county uh, initially adopted in the 90s and then revised in the uh, early aughts. Thank you for letting us know about that. Can you tell us what exactly is your role with the ag community and with Josh? You're not a regulator. So how is it that you can get people to work with you on some of these programs? So I'm an employee of Haywood County's Soil and Water Conservation District. There are 96 districts throughout the counties, and forgive me if I bore you to death with the details, but it, it sort of was uh, birthed of the Dust Bowl. I would say the 90s is when the face of the county began changing as far as development. And then in 2008, the North Carolina Department of Ag began its conservation easement program. It's just more every year, it's becoming more of a vital program for North Carolina as a whole, but Haywood County is certainly as we lose uh, farm after farm after farm. And so this program is just, you know, designed to help the farmer keep it a farm. Because mm -hmm. as Josh had talked about earlier, Generally, people who inherit a farm are faced with really kind of ridiculous land prices. And so it's much more lucrative to sell that farm to a developer than it is to keep it a farm. And uh, obviously, it's a lot easier, but you only get the money once. And uh, yeah. farm's gone pretty much for forever. And just to give you a little tidbit that you may know... I'll ask you, Gail, do you know how long it takes to farm one inch of topsoil? That's a wonderful question. I'm inclined to say a million years, but that may be an overstatement. Well, that's high, but you're, you're not wrong in going high. It takes about four to 500 years to form one inch of uh, topsoil. Wow. So that's what we mean by when you develop it, it it's gone for good. It, practically speaking, you know, it's gone for centuries. So... And that's, uh, that's a very scary thing when, you know, you realize that there's an ever-growing population. Um, we need farmland. Um, and yes, technology has advanced to where we're able to get higher yields and make land more productive. That's not a replacement for just having the farmland in the first place. 
Listen, thank you for all the work you're doing and to encourage that and uh, for spending the time with us today. We really appreciate it. Well, thank you for the opportunity. Glad to help. Mitch, let's bring you back into this conversation. Is there something inevitable about the loss of farmland as population grows? Can this problem be solved? I absolutely think that it can. Um, we have so much possibility in the way that we farm, in the way that we develop our land to make better decisions and get on a better track. You know, there's certain things that we have to recognize are going to be a challenge. Climate change is a runaway train at this point, and we're trying to slow it down, but it's got a lot of momentum and there's going to be challenges. There's these droughts and heat waves and extreme rainfall are going to keep hitting us. But that's only one part of a very big and integrated system that also has a lot of redundancy and a lot of potential for resilience if we make the right decisions, if we keep up the momentum where farmers are more and more excited about protecting their own soil health and seeing that as a huge asset that they can use to become more resilient on their farm, um, whether the next drought a little bit better than they would have otherwise, uh, continue to be able to provide crops and produce to the customers who need them um, year after year, sequestering carbon and even helping to slow down climate change at the same time. That's a huge trend. That's a trend that we need to keep going, that we need more research, more education, more innovation on farms across the country to get that done. We can do more to support our farmers so that they have the ability to keep operating. It's not easy to keep a farm running year after year, especially when you're operating on very thin margins. And so better support that allows farmers to be viable to keep that those harvests coming year after year, that's also smarter, that incentivizes them to make good decisions about resilience and helps us be resilient globally to disruptions like what we're seeing in Ukraine, I think that's a path that gives a lot of hope that with all those challenges, we can still work towards a food system that is both resilient to those big shocks and also regenerative, building back the, the health of our environment as we grow food. How about this? I'm a listener. I've spent the last half hour hearing you talk about this. I'm very excited about it. What can I do to help? I think the biggest thing that you can do to help is to get engaged on local land use decisions. And it doesn't sound sexy because really what makes a difference between 18 million acres of agricultural land converted, which is our baseline business as usual scenario, or even 24 million acres of agricultural land converted, or something better is the way that we develop our cities. And the easiest way to say it is we need smart growth. That's kind of a buzzword. What it means is that we need to think about our land use holistically as we build places for people to live, places for people to work, places for people to shop. Don't just go and grab the cheapest piece of land and stick something on it because it's available. We need to be smarter about that. We need to be thinking about the way that our development affects our farmland, the way that it affects the environment. We need to preserve wetlands and streams and lakes at the same time as we preserve our farmland. And we can do that by making decisions to support 
more compact growth. Um, most of those decisions about how our cities grow and change are made at the local level by um, county or township officials um, with some influence at the state, state government level. So you can have a big impact. The good news is at that local level, you can have a huge impact. If you show up, if you get active, get elected to a board, you can really shape the future of your town or your county. And so I think that's a really powerful thing that people can do if they want to see an abundant future with lots of agricultural land, with thriving wildlife, with a clean environment for your kids and grandkids to enjoy. Get engaged at that local level, help cities and towns make better decisions to use our land well, to create affordable housing for people to live in, um, and to keep our open spaces open. Mitch, thank you. Thank you for your work and thank you for taking the time with us today. Thank you very much. I appreciate the opportunity. Now I'll turn you back to John Piotti for some words about our next episode. Many farmers are interested in transitioning to regenerative farming practices that help build thriving businesses, ecosystems, and communities. But changing practices requires capital. Join us for our next podcast to learn more about programs that are seeding the future of regenerative agriculture and hear from farmers who've already benefited from these investments. That's next time on No Farms, No Future, the podcast of American Farmland Trust, created in collaboration with the Heritage Radio Network and produced by The Food Voice. Executive producer Louisa Kasdan and audio director and composer Michael Moss. I'm Gail Chaddick. This show is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.